Well, today we're in part four of our series, Bold. So on the count of three, can I get everyone, wherever you're watching from, to say bold on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Bold. Yeah. And the great thing about that is if you're watching in a house somewhere and someone in the house is not watching with you and they just heard you boldly declare the word bold, they think you're crazy. You're welcome. So yeah, we're in this series, Bold, and we're talking about how to be bold because in every one of us, there is a desire and a, and a deep drive to want to be bold. There's something in me and there's something in you that wants to live a life of boldness. We want to say the right thing, do the right thing, be the right person, regardless of the circumstances that we face, that whether it's easier, whether it's difficult to be bold, we want to do the right thing, say the right thing, and be the right person. We want to be bold, but at the same time, we know that it's possible for bold to end up looking like dumb. And so we're tra- talking for these few weeks about how we can be bold without looking dumb or ending up dumb. And the, and the best way that we've talked about it is to simply build our boldness on the right foundation, not our own intelligence, not our own abilities, not our own anything, but simply to build our boldness on the same thing that the early church and the earliest followers of Jesus built their boldness on. We said from the very beginning that the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection is the only lasting foundation for bold living. That's been the driving force of this entire series, that the resurrection of Jesus changed Peter. And the resurrection of Jesus changed Peter, and what changed Peter changed the world at that time, and it's still changing the world today. That the resurrection of Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead, that's the foundation for boldness. Not who we are, not what we've seen, not what we've been, but simply the fact that we know Jesus rose from the dead, and death does not hold the end of the story, and death does not get the final word. And so we can be bold because we follow one who conquered sin, conquered shame, conquered death, and overcame the grave. And so we've been looking at the example of the early church to find out how we should live boldly. And from the second week on, we've talked about how to be bold. From the second week, we looked at this story of when Jesus' followers met a man who was lame. And what we said that second week was simply this, that if we want to reach the world, we have to start by reaching the one. If we want to change the world, we start by reaching the one. We don't overlook one in order to reach the many. No, if we're ever going to reach the many, we have to reach one at a time. Then last week, we looked at the story of what happened when they had reached the one and not everyone was particularly happy about it. In fact, there were some people that were incredibly upset about it because they kept talking about Jesus, who they thought had gone away. They thought they had snuffed out the Jesus thing and it was just getting started. And we saw a church that was bold in the face of opposition. And thank God they were because a scared world will always need a bold church. And that's kind of where we have left off in the book of Acts. And today we're going to jump forward a couple chapters. But while, we, while we're jumping forward a couple chapters, let me fill you in on what was happening in those few chapters. See, up through Acts chapter 4, where we finished off last week, the church kept growing and kept growing and kept growing, and good things kept happening, and miracles were happening, and people were taking care of one another, and everything was good, 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 good. And over the next few chapters... Unfortunately, the religious leaders and the religious institutions of the day decided that they were going to fight back. That first trial that Peter and John were in was one of many beginning was was really just the beginning of the opposition that the church would face. And so over the next few chapters, a persecution broke out against the early church, against the earliest followers of Jesus, and it began to look like this opposition was never going to go away. There was a man named Saul in fact, who was so against these early followers of Jesus that he went and got orders to go and arrest and throw Christians in jail and maybe even kill Christians if he got the opportunity. We're going to look a little bit at his story next week. 
But here's the thing. At that time, because they, were, because they were fearful for their lives, many people began to wonder, well, can the church survive this kind of opposition? Sound familiar? This is an opposition like we've never seen before. This is a circumstance like we've never seen before. Up until this point, it's been good, 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 good for us. And now they face an obstacle for the first time. And so instead of being 5,000 Jesus followers gathered in Jerusalem, the church begins to spread and begins to disperse into outer areas surrounding Jerusalem. And, and as they went, what's amazing about this is they didn't stay quiet. They didn't go, you know what, we're, we're facing op- opposition, we're facing obstacles, we're facing circumstances that seem to threaten our own lives. We need to shut it down and be quiet. They did what they had always done. They answered their own prayer from the end of Acts chapter 4 where they prayed, God, help us to speak boldly, help us to preach boldly, help us to share your good news boldly. They continued to do that wherever they went. And the good news that happened in there is as as they went to these suburbs of Jerusalem and the, and the surrounding areas around Jerusalem, the message of the good news of Jesus continued to spread everywhere they went. And so the church continued to grow and flourish and grow and flourish despite opposition and despite persecution. And here's something that we should make sure we understand, and I think it's really important, especially in this time. God used the persecution that spread them out to spread the word. God used the persecution that spread them out to spread the word. These people who had been, who'd seen the resurrected Jesus, they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus wherever they went. And because they were willing to go where they were into unfamiliar spaces and spread the word of God and spread the good news of Jesus, many more people who had not heard the news in the center of Jerusalem became Jesus followers. And what I think is so cool and what I think is a lesson for, for churches today and for our, even for our church as we face the obstacle of not being able to meet in a physical space is God is, I think, going to use this time and this season in this moment to spread the church while the, while the church is spread out, that as we're spread out, God's going to continue to spread the word. I kind of mentioned this last week that if we're willing to see it, we're now preaching the word of God in living rooms and in bedrooms and in dens and in studies and all, you know, in coffee shops and on phones and on tablets. And it's becoming more and more personal. And, um, you know, on a, on a normal Sunday, what we will see on our, between our two services and with all our kids and everything is somewhere around 200 adults will usually be at, you know, a part of our services on any given weekend. Last weekend, but just during our Sunday experiences, we saw somewhere between 700 and 800 views of our services. For those of you who aren't so good at the math, that's between three and a half and four times our normal audience. That's amazing. And so I think even in this time where we're spread out and we're not able to meet together, God's going to take this thing that is spreading the church out and he's going to allow us to spread the word even more. And so as, as, we, as we go on from there, here's where we, where we begin today. As they began to spread out, as they continue to spread out, one thing that happened around, around the early church is that they began to understand and they began to see that this message was supposed to go all over the place and that opposition couldn't stop them. But up until this point that we're going to start at today, the church all looked and sounded and dressed exactly the same, had the same background. Up until this point, everyone who was a follower of Jesus was Jewish. They all came from the same cultural background. They came from a similar belief system background. They dressed the same, ate the same, looked the same, talked the same, had a similar background, similar experiences that had all grown up in the same place. And up until this point, they hadn't, that hadn't really been a problem. Except for the fact 
that they knew that Jesus had told them that this was supposed to be something that would go all over the world. This was not meant to be something that was just supposed to stay in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. This was supposed to go to people that looked and sounded nothing like them. This was supposed to go to people who had much different backgrounds, who did not believe what they believed coming into it, who weren't Jews. This was supposed to go all over the world to everyone, everywhere. And so how was that going to happen? And today, as we look to Acts chapter 10, we're going to see how that began to happen. In Acts chapter 10, we're told this story, starting in verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. Now, Cornelius is what we've come to know as a Gentile, or what in the Bible is talked about as a Gentile, meaning he's a Roman military official. He didn't grow up in Israel. He was stationed in Israel, but he didn't grow up Jewish. His family wasn't Jewish, so growing up, he was not circumcised, which means that somewhere along the way, Cornelius became fascinated with the Jewish faith. He's, he's what's referred to as a God-fearer in other translations. And that term means he, he became a follower or a believer of the Jewish faith. Somewhere along the way, while he was stationed in Israel, stationed in Jerusalem, stationed around Jerusalem, he became fascinated with the faith and the God of the Israelites. But being a grown man, it wasn't practical for him to get circumcised. Being a man who was in the Roman ar- army, it wasn't practical for him to eat the food and pay attention to the dietary codes of the Israelites and of the Jewish people. So so what a God-fearer was, it was someone who believed in God, prayed to God, but on a practical level did not follow along with many of the, the practices of the Jewish faith. So to summarize who Cornelius was, he's a good guy, he's a generous guy, he's a nice guy, he's trying hard to do what he can to connect with God, but if you have to be Jewish in order to become a Jesus follower, unfortunately, Cornelius didn't make the cut until now. In verse 3, we're told this, about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, like we all would if an angel came and talked to us, staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon. Simon was lodging with Simon. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, here's an interesting principle that I think we should make sure that we pay attention to. God is at work in people's lives long before we start working. God is at work in people's lives long before we start working. See, we often think that God starts working in someone's life when we show up. And what we find so often is that God has been working behind the scenes and God's been working in relationships and God's been working in situations and God's been working in circumstances. And people have had this tugging in their heart to know something about God or to experience something about God. And when we show up, we're showing up at just the right time for something that they've been longing for and hungering for for a long time. One of the first times that I really began to experience this and understand understand this, was a few years ago when I went on a mission trip to uh, inner city um, in, in, um, in, in Costa Rica. And in, in Costa Rica, we were working among some of the poorest of the inner city areas. 
And we were there, and I remember going on this trip and fundraising for the trip and paying for the trip and even getting on the airplane for the trip thinking, man, when we get there, God's going to move. When we get there, God's going to do something real. When we get there, God's going to do something big. And what I felt as we were there and working with some of the local churches and some of the local pastors that were working so hard to reach these areas and to reach these cities and to reach these urban poor people in Costa Rica, I remember just feeling overwhelmed with this sense of, Man, God was not waiting for me to show up in Costa Rica. God was working in Costa Rica, and we arrived at a time where we could help people do something, and we could help God experience what these pastors and what these churches had been working for for a long time. God was already on the move in Costa Rica. We just happened to show up to help what God was already doing. And when we show up to help someone come to know God, what we often find is that very same thing, that God was working long before we showed up and started working. And that same thing happened for Cornelius. Before Peter ever showed up, God was on the move in Cornelius' life. Go on in verse 9. It says, The next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is odd. We can all agree about that, right? This is an odd thing that happened in the early church. This is an odd thing that happened to Peter, that Peter has this dream and Peter has the dream that would eventually turn out to be the very thing that would shape and turn the direction of the church to, from, a, from a church that was exclusively Jewish to a church and a message that would go all around the world. Peter got hungry, Peter had a dream, and the direction of the entire church changed. I gotta say, like, just as a, as a pastor, I'm glad we don't operate like that today. Like, could you imagine Chris gets hungry one day, Chris has a daydream, and because of that, Movement Church is moving to the moon. Like, that's the equivalent of what just happened. Peter got hungry, Peter had a dream, and, and the entire direction of the church changed. But it didn't change right there where we see it. Peter has this dream, and Peter has this dream that he thinks is all about animals, and he thinks it's all about the things that came down. He thinks it's about animals and about food. It's about animals, and about food. It's about animals, and it's about food. So let me try to explain what happened here. This was not ultimately about animals and food. The animals and the food, they represented people that spent time with these animals, and people that ate the meat of these animals. And these animals that came down on the sheet in the vision that Peter saw, these animals were considered unclean to be around, and considered unclean to eat in the Jewish faith. And so these represent people that are viewed as unclean. But while Peter still thinks this is about animals and about food, Peter responds to what he feels like God is speaking to him about what, he's, what, he's, what God's asking him to eat. So in verse 14, Peter replied, No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean unclean. Peter thinks he's doing the right thing, but Peter is actually wrong here. See, because you can't call someone Lord and tell them no. Peter says, hey, Lord, no, and you can't do that. See, what happens here is Peter is holding on to something. Peter's holding on to something that he thinks is the right thing. Peter's holding on to something that he thinks makes him clean, something that he thinks makes him right before God. And in fact, what he's holding on to, because he thinks it's right between him and God, what he's holding on to for God actually becomes something that gets in the way of God. 
And so God speaks to him again in verse 15. It says, again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean. Would you all say made clean? Made clean. What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. Now, three times this happens. In Scripture, that's a significant number. The fact that this happened three times means that this was decided by God. That if God, if it's in a dream once, maybe. If it's in a dream twice, it's looking more likely. If it happens three times in the dream that you feel came from God, this is something that God has decided and has communicated clearly to you. That this is a big deal. That what God has made clean, we don't call unclean. And so there's just something that I feel like we need to talk about a little bit. Sometimes God has to strip away your old for you to step into his new. See, sometimes God has work to do on you before you're ready to reach someone else. And in case that sounds like I'm saying one thing, let me be very clear about what I'm not saying. I am not saying that someone has to be perfect in order to reach someone else with the message of the good news that Jesus died and rose from the dead. What I am saying is that there are times where if there's something in us, if there's something in our hearts, something in our minds, something in our relationships that gets in the way of influencing someone and help, and, and gets in the way of, of our message and gets in the way of what we're trying to communicate about God's love and God's grace, if there's something in us that gets in the, ra- in the way of someone that God loves, knowing that God loves them, we've got some work to do. And there's some things that maybe God needs to strip Away. So if there's something that's in you that gets in the way of relational influence with something, someone that God loves, if there's something that gets in the way of influence with someone, if there's some prejudice towards certain groups of people, God will work in you and God will work on you to, so, that there, so that in the end there will be nothing that gets in the way of the influence that God wants you to have with the people that Jesus died for. See, there was a day when we used to think that the stuff that, that we needed to change and the stuff that we needed to work on, it was all the external behaviors. It was, it was the bad habits. It was the smoking. It was the drinking. It was the dancing. It was the loud music and certain types of music and tattoos and you know, cussing and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think there was a day where we thought that those things were the things that would compromise or undermine our influence with other people. And I think more and more and more as a, as a culture and as the church, we're beginning to understand that while those things might undermine our influence with some people, there are other things that will undermine our, our, our conviction and will undermine our influence with larger groups of people. That things that are in our heart, things that are in our mind, things that come across in the way that we talk to people, those things can undermine our relationships and undermine our influence with other people. See, racism, racism undermines influence. Refusing to try to understand someone's perspective or someone's political perspective. If we get so arrogant about our political perspective that we ruin a relationship with someone, that undermines influence. Jealousy undermines influence. Looking down on other people arrogantly and treating people as if they're projects to take on and, th- people, to, and people and stuff to fix, it undermines our influence. And so if there's any of that in us, let's just let God strip that away. And I just want to say, if you're finding yourself right now with a lot of extra time on your hands, like, like I would imagine a lot of us are finding ourselves with a lot of extra time on our hands, right now can be an amazing time for a little bit of personal reflection where we actually say to God, God, if there's anything in me, if there's anything in me that gets in the way of influencing someone else, if there's anything in me that needs to change so that I can be the person that you want me to be to reach someone with your love, God, bring that to my attention and help me to change. And even Peter in this moment, 
began to understand and God began to bring it to his attention that there was something in him that needed to change. So the story goes on in verse 17. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away, right away, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. And I think it's at this moment that Peter started to put some dots together, that this was not a vision that was about ultimately about animals and food. I think this is the moment Peter started to get it, that this wasn't about animals and food. This was about people that God loved. Peter finally understood this was about people. And I love that God gave him the little bit of clarity, the little bit of an extra boost in case he wasn't sure, in case he hadn't connected the dots. God goes, hey, just want to let you know, you can go with a clear conscience. You can go with no doubt. You can go with absolute confidence that I am going with you and that I have called you. He says to Peter, hey, Peter, remember how boldly you were on the day of Pentecost? I want you to go to this house and to this man and to this family with just the same boldness. Peter, remember how how bold you were in front of the the Sanhedrin and in front of that trial? I want you to be just that bold when you go to speak to this Gentile man and his family. Peter, remember how bold you were when you went back to the early church and you told everyone and you asked to pray boldly? Well, I want you to be the answer to your own prayer right now. And I want you to go boldly with no doubts and with a clear conscience to spread my good news. And so here's what happens. Verse 21, then Peter went down to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. I love that they you know, kind of build up their boss like in case you know, they need to sell, sell Peter on the fact that, that, that they should actually, you know, that Peter should go with them. A God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Peter then invited them in. He invited them in. This is important. He invited them in and he gave them lodging. Peter answered God's call and Peter answered their call. And already you start to get a little bit of a shifting from Peter. Because for Peter, a a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish man who had followed all the regulations and all the, you know, like I've never eaten anything unclean or anything impure. For a man like him, he he knew that inviting these men to stay with him, inviting these men into the house, this would make him impure. Having unclean Gentiles stay in your house was something that ceremonially would make you unclean. But Peter has started to shift. He started to say, if God has made, has made them clean, I'm not going to call them unclean. If God's brought them here, if God sent them an angel and sent me a, a vision, God's bringing something together. And so I'm not going to call unclean what God might just be making clean. Verse 23 goes on. The next day he got up and set out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. So Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. Now, I love that Peter continues his streak of unimpressive opening lines of sermons. Just imagine this, like, hey, guys, you know it's unlawful, it's forbidden for me to even be here. I'm getting dirty just by talking to you. That's the equivalent of what Peter just said. And then he says this, but God has shown me 
that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask, why you sent for me? This is great. Hey guys, you should feel privileged. Up until about five minutes ago, I thought you were so dirty and so unclean and so uncivilized that if I even stood in your presence, I would become, I would become dirty, I would become unclean, and I would be uncivilized. Up until about five minutes ago, that's the way I thought and that's the way I lived my entire life. But let me just let you know that five minutes ago, God told me, that that's not the truth. So here I am, and you're privileged to be standing in my presence. So what do you want me to do for you? So what do you want me to do? What, what can I do for you? What can I help you with? What can I help you understand? And then what happens in verse 30 is Cornelius replied, four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who's also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So I immediately sent out for you and it was good for you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter now realizes what God has been orchestrating through the events of the last few days. Peter realizes, oh, I got invited into a Gentile house, into a, Gentile, into a Roman officer's house, because there's something that God wants me to do. And what God wants me to do is God wants me to boldly proclaim the message of Jesus to the first Gentiles ever. And so here's what happens in verse 34. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, all the Jewish people. And now Peter is finding out the Lord of all the earth and everyone everywhere for all time. It says this in verse 37, You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead." All the prophets testify about him through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the simple gospel again. That's that old familiar sermon of Peter's, that Jesus came from God. We're all responsible for his death. God raised him from the dead, and new life is found in him. It's the same sermon, but now Peter is beginning to preach it, and Peter is beginning to understand that this time around, it carries a little bit of a different twist. And here's what Peter begins to understand, that this was not good news for the Jews. This was good news for everyone, everywhere. Here's the kind of thing that I want to make sure we understand. The good news is good news for all people, including you. It was the good news for Cornelius' family. It was the good news for everyone in the Roman Empire. It was the good news for everyone in Asia. It was the good news for everyone in Africa. And it's good news for you. See, Jesus came. That's the same story. But Jesus came for you. 
He died on the, on the cross, and we all pay a little bit of a price for his death, and we all were a little bit responsible for his death, and he did that for you. He raised from the dead for you, and new life is available for me and for you. The good news is good news for all people. And so here's what we're told happens. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Again, just as we saw in, in, the, in the very beginning, God uses the familiar to confirm the new. That God used a sign that had become a familiar sign in the early church as a sign that God was moving and that the Holy Spirit was working, that this was part of what Jesus was doing in the world. God uses that same familiar sign to say, hey, this new thing that you didn't think was possible, that the Gentiles and the entire world could come to faith in Jesus, it's going to them too. God used the familiar to confirm something new. And the guys who went with Peter are sitting there going, they're getting it. They're coming to faith. And, wow, we didn't think this was possible, but we're amazed at what God is doing. The story wraps up this way. It says this, Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. God does what God does. He saves people that Peter thought were beyond saving. And he uses Peter, a guy with some work to do, to play his part so that they can come to know him. Now, as we come to the end today, let me, let me just tell you, for, for as, as I think about this in my personal life, when I think about this as, as a as a message and a story for all of us. I think this is such an important story and it teaches us two really big things. And so and it teaches big things to two different, different groups of people. The first one is simply this. For some of you, you feel like you are beyond saving. You believe that you've gone too far, that you've ran too far, that you've done too much, that you did too much, that when you were in college, you did some things that were way too far for God to ever forgive, what, that yesterday or last week or a couple weeks ago, you were involved with some stuff that made too big of a difference and made too big of a dent in your good behavior bank account and that you are beyond saving. And I just want to let you know today that no one is beyond God's saving grace. No one is beyond God's saving grace. And let me be very specific. You are not beyond God's saving grace. See, when Jesus died on the cross, his death on the cross was enough to pay for all of your sin. Everything you did in your 20s, everything you did in your teens, everything you did in your 30s, everything you did last Saturday night, everything you did last night, everything that you did when you, when you were running away from God, everything you do, you're doing right now while you're running away from God. God, when Jesus died on the cross, God put my sin and your sin and the sins of the entire world on Jesus. And Jesus's death as the perfect son of God was enough to pay the price for all our sin. God's grace is big enough to deal with all of your sin and with all of my sin. You are not beyond God's grace. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with enough resurrection power to raise you from the dead that you find because of your sin. The dead that you found because of your sin, that wherever you find yourself dead and far from God, Jesus's resurrection has enough power to raise you and to raise me to new life 
in Christ. That's how good God's grace is. That's how big God's grace is. It was enough for you. It was enough for me. It was enough for your addiction and for your bad habits and for your bad behavior and for the fact that you, you know, cheated on someone while you were in high school or while you were in college. It was enough to make up for what you did last Saturday night, what you did last night, for who you were with last Saturday night. God's grace is enough for you. And so don't for a moment think that you've gone too far for God's grace. In fact, if you've gone so far that you think you've gone too far for God's grace, you are in the prime position to understand God's grace. And so if that's you today, let me just take a moment and and say for you, this is maybe a moment, this is a day, this is your moment to say, hey God, I'm a sinner and I think I've gone too far. But God, I've heard that you're in the business of saving people and forgiving people who have gone too far. And so God, if you can save anyone, save me. I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And I need a grace that's big enough to handle all of my sin. And it can only be found in Jesus. So no one is beyond God's grace. And so the second thing that I think, there's a second group I think that we should pay attention to, and that's those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, those of us who are, you know, have, have been Jesus followers a while, and, and we've kind of begun to understand God's grace. And the thing that I think this should teach us about God's grace and about God's love and how we're supposed to live that out in the world, I think most of us, as Jesus followers, we find ourselves in the position of Peter. We find ourselves in the position of a guy who thinks that there's people that are too far gone, who thinks that there's people that are maybe a little bit beyond God's love, that it might be really, really, really hard for them to come to know Jesus. And so the thing that I think we should maybe pay attention to is simply this. We should erase lines that keep us from loving people for Jesus. We should erase lines and cross boundaries that keep us from loving people for Jesus. Now, some of you hear that in our current context and go, is he telling us to ignore the governor's commands? Is he telling us that we should go out and get crazy in groups of seven or eight or even nine people and just spread the love of Jesus everywhere while we're also spreading other stuff? Like, is that what he's saying? That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that. Here's what I am saying, though. Love people and influence people, and stop letting differences in background or race or politics or past experiences or current realities get in the way of loving someone that Jesus died for. We as Jesus followers have gotten so known over the, over the years for being people that say, well, if you disagree with me, I'm, you know, you can't, you can't post, I can't love you. If you disagree with this, I can't love you. We have gotten so wrapped up in identity and in what people are experiencing. And, and we have said no to, to a lot of people on behalf of God. And I just want to say, for those of you who have done that, it's time for us to let God strip away whatever keeps us from loving someone that Jesus died for. If there's something that keeps us from influencing people for Jesus, we need to let God cut that away. And we need to say, if there's a line that I have made, if there's a line that my parents made, if there's a line that I don't even know where it got made, but somewhere along the way it got made, and I have a hard time loving people on the other side of that line, it's time for me to begin to peel back and erase those lines in my heart, in my mind, in my relationships, in my world. And so here's the thing. I think for many of us right now, you know, as we look at the world right now, it's all band together. It's all, it's, 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 you know, take care of people. It's love people. And we're all kind of going through some of the same stuff. And we're all going, 
you know, hey, yeah, we're all going to take care of each other. We're all going to be nice to each other, all going to be kind to each other. Let's get on balconies and let's sing to each other and let's play the saxophone and let's play the keyboard and let's have wonderful times of singing and let's all be, you know, about peace and love. And it's great. And I think it's amazing right now. But here's what I know. There will be a day where it comes time to put the world back together. And there will be a time where it comes back to putting our city together and our state together and we get, and we get to move forward. And in that moment where it's time to move forward, there will be differences of, of opinion about what the world should look like when we move forward. And in those moments when someone has a different opinion than you, is it possible that you can still love someone who has a different opinion than you? If you're a Republican, is it possible that you can love someone who has a democratic opinion about how the world should be put back together? If you're, if you're a Democrat, is it possible that you can love someone who has a Republican answer for how to take care of people through the crisis? There will be a day where we all put the world back together and we all begin to move forward. And in those moments, that's where the biggest test will come. Are we able to love someone with a different opinion than us? Are we able to love someone who has a different answer for how we put things back together from the way that we think things should be put back together? That's when our moment will come. And that's the moment where it will be time for us to make sure that in our hearts, our minds, in our lives, we have erased the lines that would keep us from loving anyone that Jesus died for. So here's, so here's three questions I would love for you to think about. And we're going to put them up on the screen as, as, the, as, the, as the service ends. What might God need to strip away in you so that you can step into the things that he has for you? Is there something that God needs to strip away? Number two, what does it mean to you that the good news is good news for everyone? And how can you begin to share that good news with someone today? And then finally, number three, have you created any boundaries that you need to cross to reach people for Jesus? And how can you begin to cross them today? And so here's the thing. Peter stepped across the line. Peter stepped across the line of tradition. He stepped across the line of what his family had believed and what he had believed for his entire life because he believed that Jesus had done something so radical, so amazing, so life-changing, and so earth-shattering that everyone in the world needed to know about it. And what if, what if we stepped up as men and women, as Jesus followers today, and did the same thing? And said, no matter what the lines are, no matter what the boundaries are, I'm willing to step across the lines so that someone can know that Jesus loves them and he loves them enough that he came from God, he died on a cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead so that we could have a new life in Christ. Let's step up and let's be willing to move past our fear. Let's be willing to step up boldly as the men and women that God is asking us to be to spread the good news because the good news is good news for everyone. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can know you. And thank you that everyone has an opportunity to know you because of what Jesus did on the cross and what he did when he raised from the dead. Thank you for this story and thank you for this example that we've read today of the early church and one of the earliest Jesus followers being willing to step across the boundaries and step across the lines that culture and tradition and families and even religion had built. Thank you for the example of someone willing to cross the lines. And thank you that today, in a city like Las Cruces, as far away from Jerusalem as we could possibly be, we can know you, and we can hear from you, and we can call you our Heavenly Father. Because one man was willing to step across the lines, and the entire world was changed from there. So God... Help us to be willing to build our life and build our boldness on the foundation of the resurrection. Help us to be willing to admit that there are some things in our lives that have caused us to stop loving people. 
And God, if there's something in our lives that's caused us to stop loving people of, of a certain identity, God, I pray that we would be willing to let you strip away all of that. God, raise it to our attention even right now because we don't want anything to get in the way of us influencing someone for you, someone that you died for. So God, help us right now to be willing to admit the things about ourselves that we may not like, but help us to admit them anyway. And God, would you use this time, would you use our hearts, would you use our good intentions to God move forward, to move forward boldly, to proclaim your good news to everyone, everywhere, for all time, and for this time. We love you, God, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.